This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Back for a second time, the man who smashes the parable of the pure and pious past and reminds us of the value of lowlifes, renegades, self-interested individual rebels throughout history the author of A Renegade History of the United States, host of the Unregistered Podcast, and a distinguished dean of Renegade University, an escapee from the Church of Higher Ed, Thaddeus Russell. Welcome back to the podcast. Wow. I love that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take all of it. I figure we'd do like a you know really formal uh, intro full of honorifics. Since you are from academia, that kind of stuff is, you know, you need that kind of thing to, to get you going. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about the dean thing. First of all, that's not my title, but uh, I, I don't even have a title. I just do it. But uh, I don't, we have to think of we have to rethink the titles for Renegade University. You know, I don't know. What yeah, that's I, a good. You're, you're, um, I saw you have uh, different membership levels. So, um, by the way, go to ThaddeusRussell.com and check out everything that Thaddeus is up to. But for you know access to all of your courses and all this stuff, and you've got really great names for the membership levels. They're like one of them's like Dandy. Renegade. What? I don't remember the other ones off the top of uh, my head. Rogue, Dandy, Troublemaker, and Renegade is the big one. Beautiful. I love yeah. it. So you just need a title for yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, King is off-putting, uh, but uh, something, I don't know. I don't know. I also, you know, I want to get into this if you care, but like I now that I actually have people who are have spent money to take my courses, you know, in various ways over the last nine months now. Um, there's a really a, there's a body of people there and I don't know whether to call them students. I can't, it's hard for me to say that. Yeah. Um, with them, with these people, it was easy when I was teaching 19 year olds who, you know, well, we know all about them, but in regular colleges, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to call these people because they are also, I've also learned more from them than I had from all my students at all those regular schools in the past. It's really been phenomenal. But yeah, we, you know, this, hey, this is a revolution. I mean, everything's changing. It's so dynamic. Even that, even though what we call each other, I think is changing. Yeah, you, you could always, you know, go down some sort of really fluffy, hippie, like co-learners. We're all co-learners. <laughs> yeah, there's not a good, we, we have that with Praxis. We call um, our customers, we call them participants. And it's yeah. not like we're not like legalistic about it, but like student just doesn't fit because it's it's a, you know, in our case, it's a, an apprenticeship program. So they're they're doing some learning, but they're they're doing a lot of projects and then they're actually working in a business. So we just sort of like, ah, we'll just call them participants or apprentices when they're in the apprenticeship. But it, nothing really feels like obvious. Right. Participant is correct, but it's not enough. You know, There's something more going on there and it doesn't capture it. It's sort of like the problem with, you know uh, wife, husband, lover, partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, that whole, you know, eternal problem. It's like none of them really fit, you know, often a relationship <laughs> partner is too business-like lover is just too much. You know? <laughs> My wife hates that word. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, it's, uh, it's been a phenomenal several months and, um, Hey, you know, I just was thinking today that well, I think it was what, three years ago, you and I had a couple of phone conversations when this was really this started i mean that was you were there at the ground floor and uh you were the first person to encourage me to inspire me to give me real advice and you know you were instrumental isaac seriously well i, I feel like I when i i say this, I, I tell people all the time isaac morehouse you know whatever whatever questions people have uh, about something like this it's just the answer is isaac morehouse <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a frightening no i i honestly feel like from the time i met you at a, i think you were given a lecture at an event and i had um i think i'd already read renegade history at that point but um and i'd read some of the stuff you'd written for maybe reason but when i saw you give that lecture i felt like something like this was inevitable and huh. when you and when you said you know this is what i'm looking to do i'm kind of thinking of kind of going off on my own i'm not really sure how to do it I just felt like, of course, like this is, this has got to happen. You're too big for, you're too big for academia. So, um, so today I want to talk about, I want to focus, by the way, I, I'm really thrilled for, for your success and everything you're doing. Um, and I know you're just getting started. So I, I definitely do encourage people 
check out thaddiesrussell.com. Check out the courses, um, Thaddeus's book, his podcast, Unregistered. Really, really great stuff. Um, but one thing in particular, and this is a topic that last time you came on the show, when I asked what you were working on in the future, you mentioned this briefly. Um, and I have just randomly in the last, I don't know, four or six months, I keep coming across articles and things kind of debunking some of the narrative around World War II. And then I saw that you've got this course, um, a live webinar that's, that's uh, also you know, offered as a, as a course on this very topic. And I thought, man, who better to break down this fairy tale version of the most noble, uh, in quotes, of global massacres World War II than Thaddeus Russell? I want to I wanna really dive into this. Um, mm. So could you start, and I know most people already know this, and we sort of assume everybody knows this, but it probably changes with each generation. And could you start by laying out, like, just in a nutshell, what is the standard narrative of World War II, the, the, the history of World War II that most people believe, sort of the nutshell version, before we get into what's wrong with it? Well, okay, so f- most Americans can't identify Washington, D.C. on a map. So when you say most people, I mean, <laughs> most, I guess, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that most, meaning a majority of Americans would say that the cause of World War II was about the Nazis, was about stopping the Nazis. That would be sort of the, that is the, I would say the base level. Although I bet you, you know, I'm positive there's a significant chunk of Americans, I mean, grown up Americans who don't even know about that, <laughs> like the connection between the Nazis and World War II. Um, but that would be kind of the the most primitive level of understanding, I guess, would be, yeah, it was about it was about stopping the Nazis and maybe, you know, saving the Jews might be part of it, you know, stopping Hitler. Um, the next level of sophistication would be Pearl Harbor, the Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And so that was the reason there's the second reason that the United States entered the war. Um, so in both cases, you know, it's a noble cause, right? If it was about stopping the Nazis, who we all agree were the, you know, among the worst people ever and Japan bombed Pearl Harbor period. And that's the whole story there. Um, then sure. Then it was good that the United States entered the war and won the war and defeated those, those regimes, those bad people. Um, the third level of sophistication would be probably, well, I don't know. See, that's, that's, I think what I just described is probably a majority Hmm. view, right? Then I would think that anyone sort of above that is anyone who's actually read a history book, right? (laughs) So anyone who's read a history book about this might know that Pearl Harbor wasn't just this sort of random out of the blue attack that there was back and forth between the United States and Japan that Roosevelt imposed various sanctions and embargoes on Japan, which of course is an island nation, which is basically just a big chunk of volcanic rock with almost no natural resources. And of course had to expand outward to get natural resources to fund its industry. And of course it's military. Um, they might know that, that it kind of caused an expansion of Japan into the Pacific um, which, you know, uh, precipitated a conflict. There is very few people will say that, you know, Roosevelt and U.S. policy forced Japan to attack Pearl Harbor. And I even I wouldn't quite put it that way, although my argument is essentially that. Um, then, you know, the and then for Europe, God, I don't know. I mean, the, the Holocaust is the real problem. Um and this is this is where and sort of uh, the Nazi regime. In other words, my point is that I think people are fairly well sophisticated about the Pacific War. I think that people who know history at all will n- at least know that part of it, that it wasn't just the Japanese emperor deciding to kill a bunch of Americans, that they, they would know that what I just described in the Pacific. Um, and so my argument there and the evidence I've found there, some of it's you know, standard that you can find in other history books. The thing that I found about the Japanese war um, or the Pacific war that no one else has really written about is that Franklin Roosevelt was literally planning (laughs) and dreaming 
of attacking Japan and taking over the Pacific with the U.S. Navy when he was 14 years old. I'm not kidding you. So the he was at Groton Academy, which is this very, very elite prep school in the Northeast, in Massachusetts. And the the headmaster there, very important person in, in American history and world history, his name was Endicott Peabody, Peabody. And his mission, stated mission, was to train the elite, leisured class of young men in America, people like the Roosevelts, to have a broader vision of the world and their own responsibilities. And so he was, he gave them all, all maps of the world and made them study those maps and then would tell them about these other places in the world and explain to them how it was their duty as the cream of the crop of American society to go to those places and make them better and make them more American. Uh, and that, because, so if you look at the secretaries of state the secretaries of defense, assistant secretaries of state, over the next hundred years, meaning the next, meaning the 20th century, because Roosevelt was in, he was at Groton in the 1890s, it's um, a giant chunk of that, that personnel came from, went to Groton as teenagers. It, the whole generation or multiple generations of the foreign policy establishment were trained by Endicott Peabody and his disciples there to do this very thing. So, Admiral Mahan was at that time when Roosevelt was a teenager. He was a U.S. admiral who also became the sort of preeminent expert on military affairs, military history, wrote these books that sort of all the elite schools assigned, all the elite colleges assigned. He was the man. He was kind of like the Stephen Ambrose of the 19th century. And he was an outright explicit arch imperialist. And he called for the United States to build the dominant Navy in the world and to have its ships in every body of water all over the world. And most importantly, he said, we must control the Pacific. And the problem with controlling the Pacific is that Japan is on the other side of it and they have a powerful Navy. And so he said in his books, in which he wrote in the 19th century, all of which were very famous, that conflict is inevitable, and the United States must win that conflict. The United States must remove Japan as the dominant force in the Pacific or a power in the Pacific and take over the entire Pacific Rim. And so Franklin Roosevelt's mother, as a birthday present when he was 14, gave him Admiral Mahan's books. And Franklin, young Franklin, until he died, said that those were the most important books he ever read. He read them, he studied them, he reread them, he studied maps, he studied the places the books referred to. And he said at the time that Japan was it. That's what we need to focus on. We need to build the largest blue water Navy in the history of the world, and we need to aim it at Japan. And he also said throughout his career later that when he was at Groton, there was a Japanese boy there who was the son of some aristocrat in Japan. And, and that that boy told Franklin when they were teenagers that Japanese empire was planning a conquest of the entire hemisphere going all the way to South America and the United States. That the Japan was planning it was a hundred year campaign to take over that entire half of the world, including the United States. Uh, and Franklin Roosevelt repeated this story when he was assistant secretary of Navy. He became secretary of Navy under Wilson. He loved the Navy. He told all of his colleagues in the War Department about this story, trying to convince them that war with Japan was imminent, that it was an aggressive imperialist power aiming at, at our shores. He said this when he recruited members of his cabinet when he was president in the 1930s. He would tell people, he would go out and find hawks, war hawks and imperialists like Henry Stimson, Harry Stimson, and tell them this story about this teenager you know, many years ago who said that Japan was, was out to kill us and, and uh, conquer us. Um, there is no evidence that this, that this story, that this boy, this Japanese boy ever existed, that this thing ever happened. But Franklin Roosevelt operated as if he 
he certainly believed it. Um, and so we have all this, we have this record through the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s of him maintaining this constant obsessive focus on Japan as a target. So that's the thing that isn't told. That that's amazing. I mean, I never, you know, the most I've heard is a FDR probably had enough information to know that something might be coming and, you know, maybe he wanted it to happen as an excuse to get into war. Maybe there's, he, he could have, he could have had, you know, Pearl Harbor better prepared. Um, I've heard things like that before. Hmm. Um, but that's about the farthest extreme. Yeah. So what, what did he start to do? So he's sort of telling this story throughout. Right. And when he's the secretary of Navy, what were some of the actions he started to take to kind of move towards that or to signal to Japan that we were perhaps a threat to them? <clears throat> yeah. So he, he took office in, uh, March of 1933. His first cabinet meeting was the day after the inauguration. And in that cabinet meeting, they talked about the postal service and bank policy and monetary policy. And on the, in the second cabinet meeting on the second day or third day, the Franklin Roosevelt was in office. He laid out plans to his entire cabinet, um, for, uh, preparation for war with Japan. <laughs> this is 1933. Wow. <laughs> in office. Okay. And this is recorded by members of his cabinet in their memoirs, um, that he was calling for moving much of the Navy and air force. There was the army air force at the time into the Aleutian islands, which is you know, forward in the Pacific and, and Hawaii. He said he called for a massive buildup of the military, in those places as close to Japan as the United States could get. Uh, and much of his cabinet was horrified because he actually had many people in his cabinet who were old progressives who had supported World War I, but they were not eager to go to war again um, anytime soon. He purged all those members of his cabinet by the late 1930s. And generals, most of the military, most of the top brass in the military was completely opposed to his ideas to, to be aggressive against Japan and then later Germany. And he just fired all of them. By 1940, they were purged entirely and replaced with all of these guys who had been the big Teddy Roosevelt war hawk preparedness people during World War One. These are guys who, you know, were born into elite families, but volunteered readily to fight in the Spanish-American War or, or World War One, And they just couldn't wait to get over to Cuba or Europe and start killing people. <laughs> I mean, they have more, all of it's true. I mean, they have these memoirs and I quote them at length in my, in my book, um, in which it's just the greatest, proudest moment of their life to, to like send a mortar shell into a bunch of German 19 year olds, you know, across the field. That was, that was the great heroic moment in this meaningless war. Um, yeah. So that was Roosevelt's cabinet by 1940. But, um, so what did he actually do? Um, well, it, so people call this an isolationist era, the 1920s and thirties. First of all, isolationist is a smear that was invented, that term was invented by Admiral Mahan in the 19th century to, to dismiss the opponents of the Spanish-American War, the first U.S. imperialist war. He coined the term, basically, um, to, to attack those who were opposed to imperialism, American imperialism. Now, isolationism really should mean... Um, that one is both opposed to foreign wars of empire, but also opposed to trade, foreign trade or international trade and international communication. Now, in the 1920s and 30s, um, the American people as a whole, according to many, many polls, were very much opposed to wars of any kind and certainly opposed to wars across the oceans. But international trade between the United States and other countries during the 20s and 30s went up, 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 and up dramatically, even during the Depression for a time. Foreign travel by Americans tripled and quadrupled in the 1920s and 1930s. You didn't, uh, you didn't need a passport then, did you? I don't actually... I was just you, reading... I don't remember when it was introduced, but there was, there well, was quite a period where you didn't. 
Well, you mean another? You mean for Americans to go elsewhere? Well, you needed a passport to come. Did you? Okay, because I I, I must have been reading. Yeah, wrong wrong thing. But I remember reading. I wish I could remember where it was, but that really pretty much anywhere you wanted to go from anywhere else, there was a, a period where there really wasn't uh, wasn't a need for that. But maybe that was just <laughs> Americans going one way. Well, I'll tell you. Okay, so this is actually an important part of the whole story here. So 1924 is when passports become, visas become uh, necessary to enter the United States because 1924 is when the Immigration Act is passed, the, the National Origins Act. This is when they placed quotas on all the different countries. This was a deliberate, explicit attempt to, a successful attempt to block Im- further immigration of Jews and Italians and Slavs, the inferior white people of Europe, you know, who are a bunch of uh, commies and anarchists, jazz singing, opium smoking, dance club owning, you know, mongrels. Uh, this is before they were all white, in other words, in the 1920s. Uh, and so a quota was placed on all those countries, so, which basically eliminated immigration of Jews and, and Italians and Slavs. During, uh, so, so then that's why they, that's when they started to do border enforcement and you needed visas. And they just cut off visas to places that had concentrations of Jews. And with uh, in countries like Germany that had a lot of Jews, they had a pretty large quota, but all the visa applications were screened and Jews were screened out. You were a German Jew in the 1920s and 30s applying for a visa to the United States. You were denied it unless you were a scientist who could produce things that were useful to the United States, like bombs. So Einstein was one of the few German Jews who was allowed in, and he even gave him a hard time. There were German Jewish scientists who were allowed in who became central to the building of the United States military. But uh, generally speaking, Jewish immigration to the United States, now people can probably understand why this is an important part of the story. Jewish immigration to the United States was cut off entirely, basically. There was almost no immigration allowed by Jews from Europe through the 20s, 30s, and all the way until 1945. You could not get into the United States if you were Jewish in Germany or any part of the Third Reich uh, during that time. Just they did not allow. Um, So back to Japan, just quickly. I mean, uh, so Roosevelt is wanting this. His cabinet doesn't want it. Congress has, by the way, people don't know this, and it's really kind of inspiring and amazing to watch uh, Congress people in the 1930s be sound like Ron Paul. I mean, they are really, really good. There's a bunch of so-called isolationist Congress people, congressmen, most of them, um, during that time who were famous. They were celebrities, and they they were straight up Ron Paul. Maybe in some ways, in some cases, even better. They had a whole thorough critique. They knew, they were saying, Roosevelt, you have been wanting war with Japan since you were a young man. We've known this about you. We know this is what you want. The people don't want it and we don't want it. And they were incredible in their critique, their analysis of what was really going on in Japan and in Germany. And they opposed the war right up until the bitter end. They opposed any American intervention at all until the until Pearl Harbor until the very last second really phenomenal people um and Roosevelt by the way the surveillance state was established by Roosevelt uh and J. Edgar Hoover in establishing a surveillance system uh surveillance of those congress people so he had FBI agents Hoover had FBI agents follow all the isolationist Congress people and all the senators trying to dig up dirt to discredit them in the press. Yeah, and there's a whole book about that written a couple of, just a couple of years ago by an academic historian. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Everything starts with World War II. I mean, it's just it's it's the crux. It's the nut. It's the thing. It's the nut that hasn't been cracked yet. Like if you think of all the American wars, all the foreign wars, meaning wars overseas that the United States has fought. Americans are at least skeptical of all of them, right? Except for World War II. Yeah. Like, if you know anything about these wars, right? Spanish-American War, World War I, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, ask an American what they think of those things. They're not going to be like, hurrah, that was great. I'm so proud to be an American. They're at least going to say, I don't know, did we really need to do that? And a lot of people just think of them as straight-out imperialist murder, right? But World War II is the one thing, right, that people do not – they are unwilling – to be critical of it 
unwilling to be skeptical toward it, it was the greatest loss of human life in history. Right now, the current estimate, 60, at least, the current estimate is at least 60 million people died as a result of World War II. Do you think uh, part and, of yeah. the, a part of the sort of unquestioned acceptance of the, the goodness and the official narrative of that war has to do with, I've wondered this myself, with the, the media of communication um, and, me, and news at that time, it was possibly in a window where it was more concentrated than it's ever been. So I could be wrong here, but this is sort of a shooting from the hip. You've got, you know, sort of pre-dominance of radio and television. You had, you know, pamphlets and all these sort of, you know, local town halls. And you had a um, sort of a wider profusion of really diffused ways of, you know, propagandizing or educating or persuading or, you know, distributing information. And then you get these new technologies that kind of become really, really centralized with literally just a couple national broadcasters on radio, television. And now with the age of the internet, it's, it's all very, very dispersed again. Um, and I was thinking of this because a good friend of mine said he finds it really hilarious that his in-laws, they were debating, you know, some current events and they don't trust any news source at all today. They're all corrupt. They're all lying, whatever today. Um, Twitter doesn't yeah. matter. Fox news. He said, but back when they were kids, like they think that whatever Walter Cronkite said was, Oh, of course it was one, right back when there was no competition and no incentive for these companies. Like they couldn't, there was really no risk of them being outed as lying. They have this total trust that they were always telling the truth back then, <laughs> but now they have no trust and just the irony there. But I, I wonder if there's something about, if there's something about kind of a, a smaller number of messages being broadcast nationwide where there was less room for opposition. I don't know if you have any thoughts on sort of the, the popularity um, huh. on, yeah. on that war in particular, you know, you didn't, you didn't have the ability for video journalists to go and expose the horrors like they did in Vietnam, for example. Yeah. So guess what was created in 1934 the year after Roosevelt took office, the federal communications commission, <laughs> which was regulated what was most important then radio also regulated newspapers and that man he could not get a license that, he, his fireside chats he uh, he knew how to take advantage of that yeah you couldn't get you couldn't get licensed as a radio station you couldn't have a radio station unless you were approved by franklin roosevelt's fcc and so <laughs> if you said anything that was outside the bounds of normal and respectable discourse or un-american or unpatriotic which of course was extremely broadly defined, you did not have a radio station. Mm. So there was that. <laughs> so there were no alternative voices on the radio. They weren't allowed. Um, NBC and other major radio networks during this period were in the pocket entirely of the Roosevelt administration. And most of that was self-censorship. Um, but it was also because they also went to Groton. They also went to Columbia and Yale and Harvard. It, it's the same people. It's this mm. tiny little clique of people who are running the government and running especially foreign policy. And by the way, this is just a side note, but it's really been striking in writing my book. <clears throat> when I look at the, the actual foreign policy makers over the last 120 years, it's, it's, it's just shocking how it's about maybe a total of 100 men total who have actually made foreign in a hundred years. I mean, and they all went to the same boarding schools and the same universities and they're all from the same neighborhoods. I mean, I'm telling you, it's like there's two or three neighborhoods in Manhattan and there's three or four boarding schools in New England. And it's the, not all the Ivies, it's Columbia and Harvard mostly. Mm -hmm. Almost all of those guys who made foreign policy decisions, major ones who decided to go to war, they all came from that little tiny cohort. Um, uh, so, oh, NBC. So they get yeah, right. Same people, same crew. So they're in the pocket of Roosevelt. Um, they're also, there's a, they're scared of getting censored though. They're scared of being, you know, put out of business by Roosevelt, by the federal government, because in 1934, at the same time, the motion picture industry, uh, imposed its code, its infamous code which, you know, was this incredible, incredibly strict, almost comical self-censorship. It's just, everyone should go look at the motion picture production code. 
it's online. You can look at it. It's this amazing list. And it's, it's a lot of it's sort of hilarious because it's just so over the top, but it's not, I mean, it's actually, they basically just neutered, uh, American film, American film from 1934 to the mid 1960s when the code was lifted, you couldn't do anything. I mean, that was sexual at all or violent or was anti-authoritarian at all that disrespected authority even slightly. It was all just really apple pie stuff that was allowed. And the motion picture, the big Hollywood studios imposed it on themselves. And they said this because they were afraid that Roosevelt would censor them if they didn't do it themselves. And so it was this system of self-censorship because Roosevelt was making it very clear that he was not going to allow just a free exchange of ideas on the airwaves or in uh, movie theaters or among newspapers. So yeah, it, he, is, he essentially established his own monopoly on communications and radio was the dominant form of media then. And yeah, fireside chat, that was his thing. So he was the first president to really use radio addresses, but he had no competition. You know, it wasn't like we watch when we watch Donald Trump give a speech, you know, we can have six different screens on our computer watching, you know, <laughs> all the people who hate Donald Trump, you know, shouting loudly from MSNBC or every other news source. No, there was it. That was it. You couldn't listen to anything else. I mean, you literally couldn't listen to anything else when FDR was on the radio. So, yeah, he had it on lockdown pretty early on. And so once this war starts becoming a, a real possibility in Europe uh, and and in Pacific, in the Pacific, um, he uses the radio starting in 1937 he sees a chance to uh, change the anti I call it anti-interventionist mood, not the isolationist mood of Americans, um, because Japan is expanding, expanding. They conquered. I mean, we don't want to. We want to be really clear here. It was a brutal, brutal, murderous imperialist regime, no doubt about it. Mostly against China, the China, Japan conquered, invaded, and conquered Manchuria uh, for its resources, because Japan had no natural resources um, and. So, but never had any designs. And by the way, historians are 100% unanimous on this. Japan never had any designs on the United States at all. In fact, what they wanted was to avoid any conflict with the United States. In fact, what they wanted, all of them, even the biggest war hawks, even the biggest anti-Americans in the Japanese military and government, wanted was continued trade with the United States because 90% of the oil that Japan used came from here. Hmm. And... 90% of the steel and iron Japan used came from here. So they knew that they needed to trade with the United States to be a major power. Um, and so, but Japan invaded Manchuria instead because it was easier and much less risky, um, murdered hundreds of thousands of people doing that, raped thousands of women, conquered this whole land, took it over and colonized it. No doubt about it. Um, Franklin Roosevelt used that as an excuse or a justification for a very famous speech called Quarantine the Aggressor's Speech, 1937. He gave it in Chicago. And this is really the beginning of the war, in a sense. This is really a be the beginning of the American war. And this is when Americans had zero interest. They were really hostile to any war. And Congress was overwhelmingly anti-war at that time. He said, look, see Japan over there? They're conquering. They're imperialists. They're going to come and get us. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to quarantine them. There are rogue nations in the world who can't be controlled. You can't negotiate with them. You can't offer them something to stop them from expanding. They're going to keep expanding until they come to our shores, is, was the argument in that speech. It didn't convince many people, but it, it signaled to Japan and Germany, Nazi Germany at the time, that Roosevelt was really serious about going after them. Um, so... And then Americans didn't care about the Nazis one way or the other, pretty much, as of 1937. And that was in part because, and no one knows this, almost no one knows this in America, the Nazi policy toward Jews was not genocide. It was not even killing until the very last minute, until the United States entered World War II. So the policy vis-a-vis -vis Jews immediately upon taking power uh, by the Nazis was to make life so miserable inside Germany that the Jews would leave on their own accord. Um, so they stripped Jews of all their civil rights, took their property, um, and that was, you know, they made the lives of Jews miserable. There's no doubt about it. The Nazis were absolutely, totally anti-Semitic, no question about that. 
But there was no, and this is this is a majority position among historians now. This is now the standard position among historians. I'm not giving you some radical. So, so the goal is to get the to get the Jews to to just get out of their country, make it miserable, so they go somewhere just else. A, right. So they took all their all their money, all their property, all their civil rights away. <clears throat> um, the idea of, of killing Jews um, was considered by Hitler to be what inferior Russians do. Like inferior Russians, because he hated Slavs, he thought Slavs were an inferior race too. And Russians, of course, had had pogroms earlier in the century, right? And this was sort of like chaotic, semi-organized, mostly spontaneous, just like lynchings of Jews. Like they were just a bunch of Cossacks would ride into a, some shuttle in Western Russia and just lynch him in the head or whatever, and then right away. And of course, it didn't get rid of the Jews. <clears throat> so Hitler thought, and he said this, you know, he said, that's, that's stupid. He called, he called that the anti-Semitism of emotion. It doesn't get the job done. You want to remove the Jews. You don't want to just like uh, uh, fulfill your sadistic fantasies, right? And so he said, no, what I am is an anti-Semite of reason. And the Nazis, he said, are anti-Semites of reason. We will get the job done. And the job is not to just kill Jews because we hate them. It's to get them out of here. It's to remove them. And the most efficient way to do that is not to go village to village and shoot them in the head. The most efficient way is to move them out physically, make them migrate. So it's both creating incentives and uh, disincentives to stay. Uh, and so another thing that almost no Americans know about is that the uh, one of the earliest founders, essentially, of Israel was the Nazi party of Germany. <laughs> so, so the Nazis and the Zionist organization, the main Zionist organization of the 1930s entered into a partnership in the mid 1930s. Uh, and the Nazis actually funded Jewish migration to what was then called Palestine. And tens of thousands of Israelis today are there, or the descendants, uh, they're, they're there because their descendants their ancestors were um, placed there, uh, assisted in moving there by the Nazi regime. <clears throat> and the Nazis throughout this period are looking for places to send the Jews. And Madagascar became uh, one destination. Uh, there was a huge plan by the Nazi government as of the late 1930s to move all, all the Jews of Germany to Madagascar and let them have a Jewish homeland even. And the and Japan, when it was entering a partnership with Nazi Germany, also opened its doors to Jewish refugees. And so in Shanghai, which Japan had conquered, it was Japanese Shanghai at the time. Um, to this day, there are Jewish residents of Shanghai. There's a significant Jewish community there because Japan was one of the few nations, unlike the United States, to allow Jewish refugees in. So... Um, that's so the Nazis don't look outside Germany or Europe like the horrendous, murderous, genocidal anti-Semites that we see them as. Um, so Americans had no real reason to uh, go to war with Nazi Germany. It was no apparent reason. Uh, first of all, also because anti-Semitism was completely respectable and normal and common in the United States as well. The Roosevelt cabinet, Roosevelt administration, politicians generally were very easily casually anti-Semitic. And there's no question about that. I'm not saying that drove their policy, but it certainly informed it. But their main policy vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish refugees was to not let them in because the 1924 law did not allow them in. And they also didn't want these mostly poor people uh, uh, entering entering the United States during the Depression. So, you know, it's not it's not irrational anti-Semitism. It's, it's rational and economic reasoning, but it is also the reason that Jews were trapped inside the Third Reich because the United States didn't allow them to get out, to go anywhere, and also Britain and France and all of Western Europe didn't allow them either. Uh, there was, Jews were not allowed to enter any country except for Japan and Palestine during this whole period, all the way through World War II. They, what, <clears throat> yeah, so they were locked in the Third Reich by the United States. Was the, so there there wasn't this, you know, feeling of we've got to stop this this evil. 
Nazi force because they're horrible and anti-Semitic and <laughs> genocidal, or whatever that, that clearly was not at play if, in terms of American sentiment at the time. What about from a, you know, as Germany started to move into, you know, they march into Poland, they start moving across Europe. Was there a sense of, okay, you know, we're sort of we're allies with England, I guess, um, probably wasn't as strong at the time as it is now. But um, is this is this a threat if Germany starts conquering other parts of Europe? Is this something that the United States, is there some level of involvement that, you know, people were sort of generally supportive of at the time, or, or at least what was the argument uh, to make it so? Yeah. So Roosevelt took his first meeting with a German diplomat in 1934. It was the first time he talked to any member of the German, Nazi German government. Um, and immediately after that meeting, he said to his secretary of the treasury, Henry Morgenthau, we're going to go to war with them. No one, no one knows this either. And what was the reason, though? So why did Roosevelt want to go to war with Germany? He didn't have a, a thing for Germany like he did for Japan before then. But as, as soon as he learned anything about the Nazi regime, he pretty clearly knew he needed to go to war or the United States needed to go to war. Why? Not because they were anti-Semitic. He never cared about the Jews. And by the way, that's a standard story. No one argues with that. Roosevelt never entered the war to save Jews at all. Um, not even a part of his motivation. And there's more to that story, too, that's really, really horrifying and disgusting. And a lot of that's not known. But um, the reason was that in 1934, Hitler began to impose a system of what was called autarky, A-U-T-A-R-K-Y, self-sufficiency, autom autonomy, economic, political, in every way. He was going to seal off Germany and make it strong and independent so that what happened in World War I to Germany would never happen again. That was, that was Hitler's main mission, was to rectify what happened to Germany in World War I and right after. <clears throat> um, and that was it. So people need to understand that World War One is really the major thing going on here in the mind of many Germans and the Nazis. World War One, of course, ended in the defeat, total catastrophic defeat of Germany, destruction of much of its military, many of its cities, many of its people, many of its men were destroyed. Um, and then on top of that, the Allies agreed to take huge chunks of Germany, German land and give it over either to other nations or they would, cr or they create it as part of the Versailles agreement, um, new nations like Czechoslovakia and just hand big chunks of Germany to these newly created nations. Czechoslovakia was cre created in 1919 as a result of the World War One, and um, a big chunk of Germany full of German people native ethnic Germans, culturally German people, became Czech citizens overnight. Same thing was done with Poland. Poland essentially didn't exist as a nation state until World War I. They created it, and then they gave big chunks of Germany to Poland. Um, it was, uh, and then the Rhine on the west was given over to the Allies. So you had like hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of German people who suddenly were forced to change nationality and couldn't even sometimes travel to visit their relatives in Germany, or it was more difficult to. And so that was the real, I mean, the vast majority of German people, communists, Nazis, didn't matter what they were politically, they hated this. The left and the right agreed that World War I was just a horrible plunder and extermination, in a sense, uh, of Germany. I mean, real, real oppression. And Hitler's whole mission was to, to right those wrongs. Um, so he uh, set out to do that. He also had <clears throat> this really insane fantasy about Poland and Western Russia being historically Teutonic, the Teutonic people, the, the, or the original Aryan people, the, the good, pure, beautiful race. <laughs> they had at a point colonized those areas. It's true. And Hitler had this whole fantasy since the time he was like a teenager, too, that that all that area belonged rightly to the Germans. And so he needed to, um, Germany needed to expand, conquer those areas and colonize them and make them German again. Don't so that's channel, true. He was also don't channel your teenage fantasies into political <laughs> office kids. <laughs> yeah. So that was, I mean, that was his murderous imperialist, the, the definitely murderous imperialist part of Hitler's ideology from the get go. 
his anti-Semitism was different than people think. It wasn't nice. It was not nice. It was not good at all. It was violent, but violent in a different way than we think of. Um, so autarky, right? To make the point was that Germany was economically weaker than the Allies in World War One. That's why it was destroyed. That's why all that land was taken from Germany. If Germany, he believed, and there's a point here, if Germany can become economically powerful on its own and not depend on trade and immigration, immigration which brings in people like Jews, people who aren't truly German, uh, then that will never happen again. <clears throat> so he established, of course, it was totally self-defeating. And this is one of the main stories that people don't understand either. He cut off uh, trade with the United States, most of it. He cut off trade with much of Western Europe and um, began to just press people and through uh, conscription, industrial conscription and other means, forced much of the population to work in steel factories, to work in munitions factories. So he was, to, he was an early proponent of the buy local campaigns. Totally. <laughs> exactly. So when people talk about sustainability today, <laughs> really, honest to God, it's the same thing. I, I want to, the first thing I want to ask them is, you know, so what are you going to do with the migrants, you know, the immigrants? And I mean, what, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so that, so autarky was the plan. Um, and it was a disaster, of course. I mean, it, it worked for a minute, for a couple of years, but it was impossible. The Germany is, it needs, it doesn't have the natural resources it needs to be a major power and it has to trade, which it found out later. But um, so that is what freaked out the foreign policy establishment in the United States. Japan became, was becoming autarkic as well, or attempting to. They needed trade, but they were trying to wean themselves off of trade with the West. <clears throat> and so autarky, that word, became like the big word in the Council on Foreign Relations uh, magazine, its publications, and in the New York Times. So you had all these foreign policy wonks talking about the danger of autarky across the world, these countries that are cutting themselves off from foreign trade. And so you have uh, Roosevelt administration people and CFR and foreign policy establishment people saying, oh, my God, we won't be able to control them with our with our economy with our with trade because you know the united states was rich and that's a way to get your way in terms of uh influencing other nations right is to use your your money your goods through trade to influence them there's no leverage anymore we can't they will cut off you know all of central europe you know germany is going to cut off central europe to american trade to american influence japan is going to cut off the pacific you know western pacific to american trade and influence Autarky is what they feared. <clears throat> and that's why, that's why they wanted to go to war. That's why they believed it was necessary to go to war. The idea of an international system of managed trade controlled from the top by the United States was the idea that was established in the 1930s that sent the United States to war. That's what they wanted out of it. And they're explicit about this. The CFR has papers, there's memoirs of all those guys talking about this through the 1930s. They're developing this idea. But what spurred it was autarky, the establishment of autarky by Germany and Japan at the time. They knew they wanted to come out of it, out of this war, coming war, uh, with what we got, which was GATT and the UN and the World Bank and the IMF and all the rest of it, where, yeah, it's free trade in which... You know, one party in the trade is a, a jillionaire and the other party in the trade is poor. <laughs> so you know, the United States gets to do what it wants when it comes to trade. Um, and basically All right. So you mentioned as an aside, you said something about uh, FDR. He wasn't <clears throat> really worried about Germans, um, you know, the Nazis anti-Semitism. You said there's actually a really horrifying and disgusting part of that. Mm. <laughs> What's the horrifying, what's the part that you, you held back on? You got to let me know. Oh, I mean, it, there's so much, it's hard to even, I mean, so there are our entire books There's several, there's like three or four scholarly books written just on the subject of us policy toward Jewish refugees during the Holocaust. I mean, it's, this is out there. It's been out there. This is, I'm not the first person reporting this. It's just the, the extent of it was unknown to me. And it's certainly unknown to most people. You know, people may know about the the SS St. Louis, the ship that was turned around 
uh, full of Jewish refugees. That's pretty famous. You'll find that in the textbooks, which is true. There was a, a ship full of several hundred Jewish refugees from Germany that attempted to land on the shore, uh, attempted to land in Miami, and Roosevelt turned it around and it went back. Wouldn't allow them in, sent them back to Germany, and a good chunk of it, good percentage of those people um, ended up in the death camps. But um, no, the uh, <clears throat> the ban on Jewish immigration during this time was complete, total, and constantly enforced um, against constant prote protestations and demands and pleas desperate pleas by all sorts of Jewish leaders and all sorts of pacifist organizations and even Eleanor Roosevelt at one point and even members of Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet were just begging him to let Jews in to relax the quotas to allow these Jewish refugees into the United States. And again and again and again and again, Roosevelt and the Secretary of State Cordell Hall said no. And so you had hundreds of thousands of Jews in Germany under the Nazi regime and then in Poland after after uh, Germany invaded Poland in 1939, and in Austria, when they invaded Austria, you know, these are the largest Jewish populations in Europe. Millions and millions of Jews suddenly, under Hitler's rule, went straight to the U.S. Uh, uh, consulate and applied for visas to the United States and were denied 99% of the time. Mm. Over and over and over again. And then, um, when the war started, they continued. Uh, they continued to ban these, to not allow visas to Jewish immigrants from Europe. And on top of that, when in 1939, immediately after the war starts, Churchill and Roosevelt impose a blockade, a naval blockade on Germany, which of course meant a naval blockade on the entire continent of Europe. So the British and American navies patrolled the waters off the coast of Europe all the way around it and didn't allow anything to go in or come out of Europe. So they were tr the only way to get out of Nazi Germany or Poland or Nazi Poland or Nazi Austria was to walk all the way to Palestine. That was the only place, the only way they could go. And this was, but it's impossible, you know, because there's a war going on. I mean, and they're poor and they have no money because all their money had been taken away by the Nazi regime. So they trapped them there didn't allow them into Western Europe or the United States. And then by 1941, 42, started sending bombs. Well, Britain actually, 1940, started bombing those that country. And Hitler, Germany, Hitler said repeatedly in speech after speech, and many German historians and many British historians agree on this, most American historians do not, except for me, um, that in his speeches, if you listen to them or read them, what Hitler is saying repeatedly is, if you, if you attack us, Britain and US, we will kill the Jews. What we want is for you to take the Jews. So Himmler and Hitler for years and years and years, all through the 30s and 1940s kept saying, take our Jews, take our Jews, we'll provide the boats, we'll send them to you. We want Europe and America who pretend to love Jewish people and all peoples and are great humanitarians and egalitarians. You pretend you love Jews, but you won't take them. We want you to take them. They were demanding, asking constantly. And then finally he said, beginning in 1939, if you attack us, United States, because he knew the war would be lost if the US entered the war. If you attack us, Franklin Roosevelt, we will kill the Jews. We will not kill them until unless you attack us. And it wasn't until 1941, until late 1941, that the order for genocide was issued. In fact, there's no record of any, even the idea of genocide circulating in the Nazi leadership until the fall of 1941. And the very first death camp, the very, was called Chelmno in Poland, began operations. It, it killed its first Jewish inmates on December 9th, 1941, <laughs> immediately after Pearl Harbor, and the declaration of war by the United States on the Axis. Um, and, stunning. and right then, again, there was no change of heart. From then on, it was Churchill and Roosevelt said, nope, it will be unconditional surrender. It will be total collapse, total, total defeat of Nazi Germany, extermination, annihilation of that regime. They demanded nothing less. They would not, and he refused to bomb the tracks to Auschwitz, that's fairly well known. 
Then the most amazing thing is that in 1942, 1942, this is the Holocaust is known. This is when it's it's on. I mean, they had, this is when most of the Jews who died in death camps died in 1942. As of 19, the fall of 1942, this is many, many months when it's reported in newspapers that there are death camps and thousands of Jews are dying per day, per day. The Roosevelt administration refuses to acknowledge that it's going on and actually says that it is irresponsible, says to media organizations like the New York Times, it is irresponsible to report things like that because it will stir up public opinion and hurt the war effort. They said they denied the whole <laughs> Holocaust denial, Holocaust denial, the first Holocaust deniers. I'm sorry, but it was the Franklin Roosevelt administration. There's no disputing that among historians who've studied this. And they got what they wanted. They annihilated that regime. Um, and six million Jews were killed along the way. Uh, so, but they control that country, that region to this day. If you talk to, if you listen to like a German foreign policy person now, like German government or some like a German academic foreign policy person, the foreign policy establishment of Germany, you listen to them now. I mean, they sound like our servants. They sound like <laughs> they, they are the most pro-American, pro-NATO anti-Putin, you know, we need America. America was our great savior. They are the truly, they sound like puppets and they are. So Roosevelt got what he wanted. What he did also was he saved 6 million dead people. Yeah. So that, yeah, those, <laughs> that chapter in the book is called saving the dead. That's so, the, so yeah. rather than, you know, the, I'm just thinking through the even that with people imploring him, eventually, you know, we should take some of these refugees. The reason for refusing, sure, he was clearly um, not a fan of Jews and was you know, clearly anti-Semitic, but it was likely more of a strategic play that if Germany, you know, can't get rid of all these Jews, this is going to, that they're trying to get rid of, and this is a big part of their autarky, it's going to threaten their whole plan and it's going to basically ensure um it, it push push this into a, a war where we can completely dominate them i mean is that is that the play it seems it seems far-fetched to me to say this man just hated jews so much he delighted in turning ships around um whether or not that played a part it seems like he was playing a bigger game here what would be the reason for continually denying the, the immigration okay oh denying immigration i mean that was i, I no one knows for sure, but I mean, the stated reason was economic and that was not irrational and it wasn't even anti-Semitic. It was that most of those, as I said, most of those Jewish refugees were poor and this was during the depression, right? When you have 10, 20, 25% unemployment in particular in the big cities where they would go. Um, and so bringing in a whole bunch of, uh, poor immigrants who don't speak English, you know, it's not going to help. Uh, the economy. So that was the stated reason. Anti-Semitism was maybe a part of it. I, mean, I think it made it easier. By the way, by the way, op opinion polls of American people during this time uh, also said that Americans were overwhelmingly opposed to allowing the immigrants in too. So it's not as just they, the as they always are to pretty much every immigrant yeah. group. So, but it was also, and here's the thing, right? And this is, hmm, <laughs> this is why you should never be a statist. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, they were right. The, the, their main argument was, hey, it's the law. It's the law. The law says, you know, a certain number of people, even if they had allowed the full quota, uh, the German, the quota for German immigration from immigration from Germany, I think was 26,000 per year. OK, so, we're, you know, and then it was something like that for Poland and less than that for Austria. So it was a tiny fraction of the Jews who were in those countries. So even if they had filled those quotas with just Jewish immigrants, it still wouldn't have done anything. I mean, it will, it would have been a tiny drop in the bucket. Um, they were, they were enforcing the law that the Congress passed in 1924. Congress people who were elected by the American people who stated with their, stated with their votes repeatedly that they wanted quotas like that. Okay. This was democracy at the end of the day, actually, that did this. This was, this was American democracy. This was the American people getting what they voted for. 
Well, when That's you right. get to when you get to vote and your vote is free, uh, you make a lot worse decisions than when you have cost involved. So the fact that, as you mentioned, Americans were all about uh, purchasing <laughs> purchasing goods, you know, produced elsewhere and and interacting commercially when it benefited them. But um, you know, when you when you got to speak with your own resources, people tend to be very internationalist. Uh, when you just get to vote with your opinion and it feels quote free. People are very, very nationalistic, tribalistic. Yeah, which is why I am just supremely frustrated with the conversation about immigration these days um, by all sides, even the so-called good. I'm an open borders guy, but even open borders people uh, make the wrong argument or they don't. They miss the crucial argument here, which is that Trump, Trump, even in his wildest statements, you know, I will deport 11 million people is simply seeking to enforce democratically enacted, enacted laws. That's it. These are laws that were passed by Congress. By the way, most of the immigration laws, the main ones, were written by Teddy Kennedy. Okay, These are liberal Democrats who, who wrote these laws that established, guess what, quotas, just not racial quotas, but quotas on all the countries of the world, including Mexico. So there's only 20,000 people. The quota for Mexico is 20,000 people a year. You can legal there are twenty thousand legal immigrants, and then there's some exceptions for some family members. Basically, it's tens of thousands of people. Guess how many people applied for immigration from Mexico last year to the United States? One point four million. Okay, and we know that's not everyone who wants to move here from Mexico. The market clearly wants more. The people want more immigrants. That is a law that was passed by a totally democratic Congress in 1965 and renewed again and again by Democrats like Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders again and again and again over the subsequent decades. It's their law. And so there we have illegal immigrants because of that law. Those people are illegal because of that law. But Donald Trump is simply trying to, it's true, simply trying to enforce a liberal democratic law. I, as was Roosevelt with the Jewish immigrants in the 1930s and 40s. So that's really... <laughs> That's really the bottom, the bottom of all of this. It's, sorry, democracy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> democracy, democracy in, in a powerful nation state, right? If the nation state weren't powerful and didn't have all those battleships and that border guard, it wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. yeah but you're the... giving the people that power, and that's how they tend to use it, at least in these two instances, that's how they've used it. So blame yourself. Blame yourself, yourselves, Americans. <laughs> I, I cannot, I cannot wait for your new book to come out. Do you have any? Tar I know you're still working on it, and I know you're you're deep in it. Do you have any target release date? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> we, we did, and it passed um, again. <laughs> no, but it is. You know, I just did finish this whole section on World War II, which was a big, big chunk. I mean, a real mountain to cross and the and the final parts of it are are definitely easier and faster so i'm I'm sort of i am in the home stretch now and i do feel like um i did uh, get over the hump recently so yeah it's coming uh maybe 2018 sometime all right yeah all right i'll be looking for it and go check out if you want more on this world war ii topic alone go check out at thaddeusrussell.com the webinar um series the the event that was uh that was done on this topic where thaddeus goes into even more detail than we were able to cover here thaddeus this is always a blast uh i love love your work as a historian and i especially love the entrepreneurial way that you are going about doing your work and um you know going directly to customers and those who are just genuinely interested in learning more history uh and, and doing it as a as an entrepreneurial academic so always a pleasure to have you on Thanks, Isaac. Anytime for you, man. Anytime. Hey, I want to tell you about two other podcasts real quick. The first is called Forward Tilt. Check it out. Five to 10 minute episodes about specific ideas to improve your personal and professional life. Basic thoughts, uh, concepts, 
just a single one in each episode boiled down real quick. If you like that five to 10 minute format, check it out wherever it is that you subscribe and listen to podcasts called Forward Tilt. Pretty good if I do say so myself. The second one is called Office Hours. It's TK Coleman, frequent guest of this podcast, and myself, and we spend about 30 minutes every week answering specific questions from specific people. Could be you if you send us a question about success in the workplace, primarily primarily professional success for people sort of early in their careers, but it actually covers a pretty broad range. Anything from how to ask for a raise, how to impress somebody, how to know what kind of work to do, how to what to what to do when someone won't respond to your emails anything like that. It's full of wit and wisdom that is characteristic of conversations with TK. Check out Office Hours and Forward Tilt if you like the kind of stuff on this show. Thanks for listening.